Morning, church. It's fantastic to have you here this morning. As you'll notice, we're continuing to make progress, which is always a really good thing. Um, turn to the book of Luke this morning. If you have a Bible, I do encourage you to get it out. We'll be in Luke 4. Um, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we we thank you again for this day, for this time we have, for the opportunity to come into your presence, to come into this place, and with one heart and one mind to sing praises to your name, to honor you with our thoughts and with our hearts and with our song and singing. Lord, we know that you are uh, the great God who has saved, has redeemed us. We have very little to give you back than, than our honor and our glory and our efforts to glorify you. Lord, we pray as we turn to your word this morning that your, your spirit would, would speak into our hearts and into our minds that we would know a little bit more about our Savior, Jesus. It's in his precious name. Amen. So first of all, welcome to, welcome to Christ Church during Eastertide. I think that's what we have up here. Eastertide is actually the, the name of the Lent and Easter seasons together. Uh, it's a fancy word. Not really a fancy word, but it's just a different word that we don't usually use. And so um, we're going to be similar to what we did last year, but just maybe not with so much emphasis on on the liturgical calendar. We're going to take the six weeks here of Lent and then we're going to take the seven weeks of Easter and we're going to we're going to really look at and examine what it what does it mean to be uh, saved by this man, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the son of God. These first six weeks, the, the Lent period of time, we're going to be looking more at, uh, at, at, in comparison to Christ, what do we look like? What is, what is our brokenness? And, and, it's going to, and it's going to show us very much uh, our, our desperate need for a Savior in Jesus. And then after, after Easter, after the resurrection, or from the resurrection on following, we're going to, we're going to see what it looks like to live in light of uh, this Jesus. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. If you would like to know what we're doing, you can you can talk to me afterward. But uh, before I read our text, I do think that it helps to kind of get our bearings in where we're at in the story. So we're going to be in the book of Luke, and we're primarily going to be in the book of Luke as we go through uh, at least the Lent part of our time. And Luke has uh, a rather lengthy introduction before we get to Jesus' actual Ministry and Jesus' ministry starts in the verse following our passage this morning in Luke chapter 4, verse, verse uh, 14. But what we see previous to our passage really kind of sets the stage so that we can better understand what's happening. Luke, like the other gospel writers, he introduces us to character to the character John the Baptist. Uh, he tells us kind of what he's going to be what he's going to be talking about, and then he introduces us to John the Baptist, and then he talks about the the coming of this Messiah, this Jesus. We see Mary's song. We see John the Baptist's father 
uh, Zechariah, we see his song. We see the song of the angels. There's lots of singing in this first part. But there's, there's two things that I want to particularly draw our attention to that I think set the stage very nicely uh, for Luke chapter 4. The first thing, after we have the birth of Jesus, the familiar birth story of Jesus, which even if you're not a Christian, you've probably read at Christmas time. After this birth story, there's this interesting exchange that happens in Jerusalem with Jesus, his parents, and some teachers. The first thing that happens is that Jesus goes with his parents, Mary and Joseph, uh, to uh, Jerusalem to present uh, offerings or purification offerings to the Lord. Now, when you live a distance away from the temple, you don't regularly go to the temple to make sacrificial offerings to, to kind of cleanse yourself, you know, the offerings that are, that are covering your sins. And so when you do it, you kind of go and it's going to pay for a bunch of things or whatever. And so Jesus is 12 at this point. And when they come to the, so this is the first time they've come to Jerusalem in his life. And when they come for the, for the first time in Jesus' life, they, they present him to the Lord because he's the firstborn of Mary, which is the custom that is found in Leviticus. And, and while they're there, this happens, this presenting of Jesus to, to the Lord. And then they leave. And for everybody else, when they leave, they leave. I mean, that's the end of it. That was a nice, a nice ceremony. It kind of reminds us that God is, is our God and, and so on and so forth. Kind of gives us this, this pattern of life to never really forget, uh, never really forget our God. But for Jesus, something, something is different about this experience. Something is, something is maybe familiar about the experience of going to the temple to be dedicated to God, the Father, who is the Father of Christ. And so Mary and Joseph, they leave and they forget Jesus, which is kind of surprising, but it's not the first time and it isn't the last time that a parent forgets their child somewhere away. You all sort of giggle at that, but you kind of all know what I'm talking about. And Jesus, he stays back. Mary and Joseph, they realize that after a little bit, and they go, they go crazy, because rightfully so, they go crazy. And then they search. We're told they search for quite a long time. For three days, they search for Jesus. And they finally go to the temple, and they find him there. And he's asking these questions. He's, he's talking with the religious leaders. He's asking these questions. Everybody who hears what he's saying is amazed at what he's saying. They're like, this 12-year-old boy has all this great wisdom, and, and where did it come from? And Mary and Joseph, rightfully so, as his parents, they see him and they're, they're really quite upset. In verse 48 of chapter 3, or of chapter 2, excuse me, they say to him, Jesus, Mary, or Mary, Jesus' mother, says to Jesus, Son, why have you treated us so? Why didn't you come with us when we left? And Jesus' response, I think, sets the stage for us, especially in the story that we're going to look at in Luke 4. He says, why were you looking for, for me? Well, obviously, why are you looking for me? You're, you're a child. And... Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in my father's house. For Jesus, this is the only logical place for him to be with his father. In 
community or communion with the Father. Jesus being the second person of the Trinity, who along with the Spirit has lived for all eternity in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship, in perfect communion with each other. And now, for a period of time, Jesus has been on earth, separated at least in some small part from his Father. And so he finally gets to return home, if you will, to the presence of God the Father in the temple, and he's like, I don't really feel like leaving. The other thing that I want to point our attention to is after this, Jesus goes home and he listens to his father and mother. He obeys them like he is supposed to. And then, and then we're reintroduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, he's preparing the way for Jesus, and then Jesus comes and is baptized. And he's baptized not because he needs to be cleansed, but because he is going to follow and obey the word and the commands of his father. Which, by the way, is very important. But what I want to look at is, is verse 22 of chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's not up on the screen, but in verse 22. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. This is after the baptism. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's a beautiful Trinitarian passage. We see the Son, second person of the Trinity, receiving the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and being uh, kind of spoken over or blessed by first person of the Trinity, the Father. Now this passage is so important for us because it shows us something unique in history. We see a physical representation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is invisible normally, so he makes he takes on physical form. That's what we mean when he says bodily form, like a dove, and it descends upon Jesus, rests and enters into Jesus, and from that point forward is in Jesus. Now we're gonna I'm gonna make a statement and it's and it's critical that we understand this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all share the same will. Their desires, their actions, everything about the three of them share in perfect unity the same will. But theologically speaking, it is not Jesus' will, it's the Father's will. So while they share the same, they say they share the same will, it is not originating or beginning with the Son or the Spirit. It originates with the Father. And from the point of Jesus' baptism and his in the descendant the descending of the Holy Spirit into his life, Jesus from that point forward will live in response to the moving of the Spirit in accordance to the Father's will. Now that gets a little bit complex. And I hope that after we look at today's passage it will be a little bit less confusing. The Spirit's job is to move us along the will of the Father in heaven. It was the same task that the Holy Spirit had for Jesus. So let's look at our passage this morning. Luke chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was Led by the Spirit. It's extremely important that we hear that word, led. 
was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I like that verse. He was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the You To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you view then will worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him, he being the devil again, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, or the highest point of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, if you want to check him on this, it's, it's uh, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands he will, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Hmm. Holy Spirit, we again ask that you would clarify these words to our hearts. In Jesus' precious name. So, A couple of things are happening here that are very interesting, I think. Like I said, the rest of Jesus' life in ministry is going to be in accordance with the Father's will and led by the Spirit. Luke, in particular, he emphasizes this more than the other gospel writers. He doesn't say that, that the Spirit leads Jesus in every single moment, but, but it's abundant enough to make us understand that that's what he's getting at. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, in verse 1, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. So he's full of the Holy Spirit, and we already addressed this, and he was led by the Spirit to do something particular. What exactly was Jesus led to do? Well, he was led to go from probably a place of relative comfort, where there's food, out into the middle of nowhere, into the wilderness. This is likely the wilderness of the people of Israel, were wandering around for the 40 years before they enter into the promised land. We know that he's near the Jordan River, which is what they have to cross into, and so on and so forth. So he goes out into the wilderness, and he's, he's supposed to be there for a particular purpose. He's supposed to be in the wilderness for 40 days. Well, 40 days is important because many times in Scripture you'll see the, the, term, the number 40, and it's, it's used primarily to remind us of a generation of something passing. 
So the people of Israel are in the wilderness for 40 years so that a generation of them might die because they're not allowed to go into the promised land because they didn't trust the God who just shown some of the most spectacular things ever. The people are in the land of Egypt previous to this. Joseph goes down. God makes a promise to, to Jacob. Your family will one day come back out, but it will be 400 years. That's 10 40-year increments. That's, that's 10 generations, theologically. So anytime we see 40, there's a reason for it. In 40 days, the passing on of a generation means that if you would do what Jesus is going to do, going to fast for 40 days, it's, it's like passing a generation of your life away. Now I think what this signifies for us is when you start a 40-day 40 ta- fast, at the end of that 40-day fast, something very different will happen with you. Your, your life will be marked by that period of time. Mind you, if you're actually fasting properly. Not if you're just not eating for 40 days, that's not what fasting is. So that's what's happening. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. There's something, something is going to pass away from Jesus. Not that he needs to be cleansed, or not that he needs to be changed in any way, but symbolically we're seeing kind of this transition happening. So he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and we see, we see that he ate nothing during those 40 days. He fasted. Like I said, fasting is not just about not eating. Fasting in the Bible is always about food. During the Lenten period, a lot of people give up other things, and that's perfectly fine if you give them up for the purpose of dedicating time to the Lord. But the purpose of fasting is not to give up food and to lose weight. The purpose of fasting is to hear God more clearly. Now, if anybody's ever done a short-term fast, one, two, three days, you might be asking the question, how is it that I can hear God more clearly? Because my stomach is very loud. Now, I want to tell you something. Very important. Most of us, unless we've done an extended period of fasting, have never felt hunger. If you've done a two or three day fast, you might think that you have felt hunger. But actually what that is, is that's just simply your appetite. Hunger is whenever your body starts to tell you in physical pain that you need to eat or you're going to die. I don't believe that there are many Americans today who if they missed a meal or ten, they would die because we have quite an abundance. What this is, is this is appetite pain. This is your body saying, this is when I normally eat and I want to eat because I like food. It tastes nice, gives me energy and strength. But this ends after a while. Or so I'm told. I've never done a 40-day fast. We have to trust these other people who have done it. After about a week, five days to a week, your body starts to turn that alarm system off, the appetite hunger. When you normally have a meal, say at noon, your body goes, you need to eat. And you've got pains in your stomach. You think think it's pain in your stomach. It's actually your brain just saying, pain is there. It's not actually pain. Your stomach's not actually doing anything. But after about a week, your brain goes, well, they're not, he's not going to eat. He don't, doesn't need me to put, turn this alarm on, so I'm going to stop that alarm. And then you have a period, probably about two or three weeks, typically that's what people say, about two or three weeks, where you're not really hungry. This is when 
we can hear the Lord better. Because we're not distracted by food. But, then your body will eventually kick into starvation. It's during this period you're not in starvation. Your body is, is working off the energy of the reserves of your life. And even if you're a fit, trim person, you have lots of reserves. This is why you can go for, for, for many weeks, a couple weeks, without food and not die. But eventually your body is going to start to need food and you will receive hunger pains. Real pains. Pains that people in other countries and third world countries experience more often than us because they don't eat on a regular basis like four or five times a day. This is when most people who talk about fasting tell you, okay, now it's time to break the fast because now your body really is in need of food. And if you don't go eat for in, in relatively soon order, you're, you're, you're going to die. This is where Jesus is. He has gone through the 40-day fast. He has gone through the period of maybe, maybe appetite hunger, doubtful with Jesus because he's not eating as many times a day as we are. He goes through a period of relative ease with wonderful communion with the Father, and now he's hungry. Now his body is in starvation mode, and he needs to eat. This is critical for us to understand, because this is the very first thing that Satan attacks him on. It says in verse 3, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I want to point something out to you. It says that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to fast. 40 days to fast. That's the reason why Jesus went into the wilderness. And we can, we can, if we believe what I was saying earlier, that the Spirit of God is only ever leading us into the will of the Father, then we believe that the will of the Father was for Jesus to fast for 40 days in the wilderness, and now that 40 days is over. It says that, that Satan tempts him during those 40 days, and then we get three distinct temptations at the end of it. Verse 2, it says, And when they were eating, he was hungry. Or when, when he had ended, when they were ended, those days were ended, he was hungry. So this is after the 40 days, which is what he was led to do. So the fast is over. He's not, he's not leaving the will of the Father. He didn't, in the middle of it, go, Ah, the Father wants me to fast, but I don't, I'm kind of hungry, so I'm going to eat. He's not, he's not, He's not veering off the, the Father's will right now. If Satan wanted to come and tempted to eat, he probably would have been eaten. But Satan comes. My point in this is that if Jesus would eat at this point without this temptation from Satan, it wouldn't be sin. But Satan comes in and he, he kind of messes everything up, right? Jesus is hungry. He wants to eat some bread. Jesus has the ability to just say, stone, be bread. He created that stone so he could make it into something else, I think at least. Satan comes to him and he does exactly what Satan always does. He takes a truth and he twists it. He takes a true statement. You are the Son of God. Satan knows it. Jesus knows it. We know it. Every person in this story, every person encountering this particular passage of Scripture knows that Jesus, you are the Son of God. But Satan goes if. I think that's Satan's favorite word, if. If God really loved you. 
if you were really saved. If only you were a better person. If, if, if. If you are the son of God, Satan says. True statement, subtly shifted. Now, what's happening is the true statement is being called into question by Satan. He says, if you are the son of God, then you would be able to not sin, but turn this stone into bread. And Jesus refutes Satan. He doesn't say, I am the son of God. So there, he could have. Satan would have had no further response to give because it's the most true statement that ever would have been uttered in human history. Satan has no right over true. Jesus could have refuted this simply and then walked away, but he doesn't. Instead, he shows us something. He shows us, I think, a pattern. It says, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What's extremely interesting about this verse that Jesus quotes here is that it's incomplete. As basically every quote that Jesus is going to give is, is incomplete, sort of. If you turn to, to Deuteronomy 8, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it for you. If you turn to Deuteronomy 8, chapter Chapter 3, this is where this quote comes from. Jesus, or Jesus is quoting this, and he says, the whole verse here, it says, And he humbled you, he being the Lord, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. That's what Jesus quotes. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We do not find our sustenance, our, our life-giving sustenance from food. We get it from God. Jesus is hungry. He could have said, I don't need food. I've been with the Lord, speaking with him. And that is enough for me. But that's not what Jesus says. Rather, he combats Satan's temptation with simple scripture. Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus does not need to show himself to be the Son of God because he already knows he is the Son of God. And Satan says, let me twist this to try to, to, try to trip you up into thinking that you're not actually the Son of God. And, Satan, and, and Jesus, in, in response, says, uh, I don't need bread. I don't live by bread alone. It's an unusual give and take, I think. But more happens here. There are three temptations, right? second one happens. Verse 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. All the kingdoms that are probably currently at that point. Because Satan is not all-knowing. He just simply can show us what is currently happening. So all the kingdoms, he says, Hey, to you I will give all, these, all this authority in their glory. For it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now Jesus could say at this moment, he could say, it's already, all, it's already mine. 
If you are the Son of God, I am the Son of God. Get out of here. I'll give you all this authority. It's already mine. You can't give it to me. Many of us might be asking this question at this point. This doesn't sound like a truth. Just twist it out of, out of line. This is what Satan does. Satan takes a true statement and he twists it. And the first time, you are the Son of God, if changes everything. This time, what's the truth? That Satan has dominion in this world. That's a scary thing to say. And it only makes, it's only true in light of Christ. Follow me. When Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and man continued in sin, we allow the evil one to have reign and rule in this earth. This is why bad things happen. It's not always a cause and effect. Sometimes bad things happen to us because we've sinned and God is bringing about punishment. But bad things happen in this world because Satan has dominion now. But he doesn't have full dominion. He doesn't possess authority in his own right. He has it only because God has allowed him to continue in it. This is what we learn in Job. Job comes to, or Satan comes to God in, in, the, in the book of Job, and he, and he goes, he goes, I've been wandering around all the land, and God's like, look at Job, he's special. And Satan's like, well, if you would just let me persecute him a little bit, he wouldn't praise you anymore. God says, okay, you can do it. You can persecute him, but don't kill him. Satan can only do things at the, at the, at the allowance of the Father. But he does have dominion in this world. Evil and darkness are happening now, but not in the way that he is expressing them here. He says, look, I have authority. But that authority is not ultimate authority, and it's authority that he can't give to somebody else. And so him saying to Jesus, just worship me. Now what's also interesting about this is that Jesus comes to this earth to set himself up on a throne. I think Satan knows this. I don't think Satan knows how he's going to do this, but I think he knows that that's why Jesus is here. He's here to, to establish his kingdom. But how does Jesus establish his kingdom, at least for Jesus? Jesus is going to establish his kingdom by suffering and dying on a cross, which is a difficult path to follow. Satan comes to him and he says, look, I got, I got all this authority that I'm going, to, I'm going to keep and possess. I'll give it to you. Just, just do something easy. Take the easy way out, Satan says. Just bow down and worship me. Again, Jesus doesn't say you don't own that authority. He doesn't, he doesn't refute with the simple statement. He doesn't refute with the truth. He refutes with Scripture. This time in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Now, it's at this point that we've picked up a pattern. Deuteronomy chapter 8 is the first quote. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the second quote. And the third quote is going to come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 also. The most important verse for the people of Israel in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and following. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus asked in his ministry, what's the greatest commandment? That's the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
Jesus has probably been dwelling on this particular passage, which was given in the wilderness while he was in the wilderness. And he has power to refute Satan because he has been he has been burying scripture in his heart. He doesn't need to refute Satan with true statements. I mean, not that scripture is not true statements, but he doesn't need to challenge the false truth. He simply needs to challenge with the word of God, the sword of the spirit. There's a third one. And he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, there it is again. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then he quotes scripture fairly accurately. Like I said, it's Psalm 91. It says in the angels, he, he, he will command his angels concerning you. He being the Lord will, will, will command his angels concerning you to guard you and to keep you in his hands, right? If you go to Psalm 91, the first verse of Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And what follows those, those verses is the challenge of the world around and the trust that God protects us. What, is it, what does he mean when he says, uh, uh, my refuge and my fortress, my God, the shadow? This is a reoccurring theme in the book of Psalms. We find complete and total protection in the castle that is our God. In the stronghold that is our God. He promises that if we bury ourselves in Him, He will protect us from evil and darkness and, and violence and destruction and the things that are all around us. It doesn't mean that we won't experience pain. It means that that pain will never defeat us. And Satan, he comes in and he says, look, it's a promise in Scripture that if you bury yourself in God, he will protect you so much so he won't even let your toe get stubbed. So why don't you throw yourself down and put it to the test? See, that's where he twists it. Yes, God will protect Jesus, absolutely. And I believe that if, if Jesus would have jumped off the temple at that point, I think the angels would have swooped in and protected him. I do. But that's not what that passage is telling us to do. Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, what Satan has been doing through these three temptations is he's been calling into question who Jesus is. Are you the son of God? Or are you just another man? Are you the Messiah? Or are you just another man? Are you the son of God? Or are you just another man? And Jesus again and again and again, in light of knowing the will of the Father, doesn't need to defend his position, but rather needs to defend his God. See, this is the difference between most of us and what Jesus does at so often we try to argue Satan's points. Hmm. He's probably more crafty than you. What instead Jesus shows us is that he has complete and total trust and rest in who the Father is and what the Father is doing in his life and what the Spirit is leading him to do. 
We are broken and miserable creatures. We are broken and miserable creatures. If we were attacked like this, I don't think there's a single person in this room who would who would have won the battle, right? If we would have been finishing up a 40-day fast and Satan came to us and said, hey, hey, uh, I will make this stone turn to bread if you just put your trust in me instead of God. I think many of us would have a, have a hard time not taking that bread because we'd be hungry, right, like Jesus? See, Jesus, he, he lives this moment out. He withstands these temptations to, to show us something, to teach us something. See, we're broken wretches. We're, we're, we're just, we're filth. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we just, we just always seem to fall short again and again and again. But there's something interesting about Scripture. When you, when you live, when you follow after the Lord Jesus, when you've been saved and redeemed by Him, it's not just about when you die, you'll go to heaven. It's about this... this Thing that happens in your life, this change that happens in your life, the Spirit of God, right? Jesus says, I will send my helper to you. And Jesus uses that word because in, in his life and ministry, the Spirit of God was his helper, his guide, his protector, his, his power and strength. That's who lifted Jesus up in these moments. We are incredibly broken. But if you are saved and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, you no longer are. See, sometimes we say this, I think, maybe accidentally, wrongly. We talk about how, how we can't do it. You're right. We cannot overcome sin and temptation. But we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit who can and does. And so we can say with confidence that as we live our lives out and Satan brings about attacks, we can actually live out our lives in righteousness like Jesus. And we have a great example. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, I think the, I think the author of, our, of the book of Hebrews is, is exactly mentioning this for, in light of this temptation. Verse 15 of chapter 4, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows our weaknesses because he experienced our weaknesses physically. He says, But one who in every respect was, has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Here's the kicker of this verse, though. He's let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hmm. God has lavished grace upon us. 
And sometimes we do uh, his work in injustice. But not living in it. See, Christ, he lived it out. As we, who are indwelt with the same spirit, lived it out. He endured the same temptations, the same struggle, with the same body of flesh, and he withstood it. And then he offers that to us through the blood that he shed. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that we are not left to ourselves here on this earth. Father, as we think about our sinful nature, the flesh that we so that we so know, that like Paul, we realize that we so desire to be better and yet we continuously fall short. We know also, Lord, that the spirit that led and filled Jesus leads and fills us. Gives us the strength, your strength, to live lives of righteousness. Not because it will earn us a spot in your arms, but because your arms have already reached out and grabbed us. For changing and transforming us, Lord. The power and the work of your spirit in our hearts. So that we can follow more, more readily the path that Jesus himself walked. Strengthen us today. We praise you for your son. We praise you for your spirit. We pray this in his precious name.